The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. If you have a Bible this morning, open it up to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 27 this morning. Genesis chapter 27. If you did receive a worship guide, I, I realize we let, ran out, but you'll see our text today is a lengthy one. But it's a, it's a pretty incredible story that I'm looking forward to, to walking through together today. Uh, it's good to be back. I was actually out of town last weekend. Um, one of my former interns from many years ago was a youth pastor up in the Seattle area, so he invited me to speak at his his youth group's winter retreat. So I was there. It was a great time. It was beautiful in the mountains. There was lots of snow. And when I woke up last Saturday morning, the actual temperature outside was negative eight degrees. It's good to live in California. It is good to live. 60 when I got off the airplane, never felt so warm that Sunday night. So it's, uh, it's good. And thank you to Ricky, who did a great job last week highlighting really the, the one standalone story we have in Scripture, focusing primarily on Isaac. And if you remember the, the week before in Genesis 25, when we started the series, the focus was on Esau and Jacob and, and this birth of theirs and ultimately sealing of the birthright that Jacob has. And the story now turns back in Genesis 27 to focus on Jacob and Esau. And to set us up for this morning, I want to remind you of this promise that was given by God to Rebecca concerning her two kids before they were born. This is Jacob and Esau. And it says in Genesis 25, verse 23, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. All right, and so with that context, and, and it starts to shift back to Esau and Jacob, let's jump in. We're actually going to start the last two verses in Genesis chapter 26, starting at verse 34. It says this, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is one of the cases where the Bible is being descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not saying this is okay or something you should do. It's taking multiple spouses. In fact, in scripture, what you see whenever this happens, there's always challenges and problems that come with it. Verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, behold, I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Isaac here is old in age. It's interesting, he's not literally on his deathbed. He actually lives for 20 more years after this passage. But it says that, that he's getting old in age and so wants to make sure to pass a blessing down to his sons. And then we know that Isaac knows that the blessing is going to be supposed to be for Jacob, that God had foretold this. But Isaac favors his son Esau. And so he wants to pass the blessing down to him. It says in verse one that his eyes were dim. This not only refers most likely to physical blindness, but it often is an expression of emotional and spiritual blindness as well. As one commentator put it speaking on this passage, Isaac's blindness functions at the metaphorical level for the man's spiritual condition because he prefers Esau simply for his tasty cuisine. And so he sends Esau out, the hunter, to hunt for him to prepare a meal before he blesses him. 
verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. And so Rebecca listens from outside the tent and overhears. This harkens back to Sarah listening outside the tent when the visitors of God were visiting Abraham a generation before. And so she has this plan that she starts to enact on how they will actually manipulate it, being Jacob, because Rebecca is the mom and Jacob is her favored son. And she even heightens the importance of this blessing in verse 7, and when it says that you'll be blessed before the Lord. And so she explains to this, and then Jacob in verse 11 is like, um, hold up a second, mom. When he says, behold, that's not an expression that we would use like in any day conversation. But literally, in, in what, what the expression is in the original language is, is Jacob basically being like, hold up here. Hold on, mom. Um, I see a problem with your thing. Esau is a hairy man. His, Esau's name literally means hairy. Esau is a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. Now, there's multiple levels going there. Jacob's name means trickster, a deceiver. And we've already started to see that being true of him. And his skin, unlike his brother Esau, is smooth. But the play here also is smooth. In Hebrew, refers to a smooth tongue, a smooth talker, a trickster, a deceiver. And so there's multiple levels. And not only is it true physically, but it also we're going to see is true of Jacob as well, that he is a smooth talker. But Rebecca concocts this plan. Verse 14. So Jacob went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebecca took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So Rebecca leaves nothing to chance as she prepares all of this. Verse 18. So Jacob went in to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. 
just five chapters earlier when Isaac was being offered as a sacrifice by his father, Isaac is the one who cries out, in faith, my father. And now we see Jacob crying out, my, my father, in deception to him and setting him up to lead him astray. And the ruse starts to work. Jacob here goes from being a trickster who takes advantage of his brother Esau in a moment of Esau's weakness. And it now extends to, first off, he's straight up a liar, right? As he walks in and lies that, yes, I am Esau, clearly lying. And then he even elevates it, right? That how, how did you get this game so quick? Well, the Lord granted me success. He's straight up committing blasphemy, right, in this process, that he, he's, he's blaming and, and saying things of God that simply are not true. But his father eventually falls for it. You notice this tension the whole time. Isaac's like, is something wrong? Is something wrong? Is something wrong? But, but he's blind on multiple levels and isn't picking up what's actually going on here. Verse 26, then his father Isaac said to him, come near me and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. And said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Jacob's final act of betrayal is betraying his father with a kiss. Do note that many, many generations later, one of Jacob's descendants himself will be betrayed by a kiss in the garden of Gethsemane. This blessing now that was intended, Isaac thinking, to Esau is given to Jacob, a blessing primarily consisting of land, a place to live, of, of, of multitudes of people, of a great nation, and ultimately one of great blessing. The, the final two stands as there, cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you, is almost word for word the same as in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham out of a foreign land to follow him to a place that he will lead him. And so Jacob receives this blessing. Verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau, then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then who hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I've given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. 
By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Verse 30 highlights this tension that as soon as Jacob leaves is right when Esau comes back. Not a moment later. He just misses seeing an eyewitness account of what Jacob has done for him. And when Isaac realizes that it was Jacob whom he blessed, not Esau, it says he trembled very violently. A literal translation of this would be, Jacob trembled a great trembling exceedingly. It's all the explanation, all the exclamation, excuse me, exclamation points on it. See, Esau in this passage, you see he lacks wisdom, but he clearly has an understanding of just the huge thing that he has missed out on. He understands the magnitude of it. And in verse 36, he says, hasn't Jacob lived up to his name? That trickster, which Jacob's name means, one who grabs the heel, a deceiver. Hasn't the deceiver lived up to his name? First he stole my birthright, now he's stolen my blessing. By the way, Jacob didn't actually steal the birthright. Esau exchanged it for a bowl of stew. Isn't it amazing sometimes how we look back on our own mistakes with rose-colored glasses and we become the hero of our story and everyone else is the villain, but we're the good guy? Esau does this is now that this blessing that, that his father gives him is that his dwelling will be outside of the land and he will become a nation of turmoil and of conflict to which Esau replies in verse 41, all right, dad's old and I'm not gonna do anything yet, but when dad dies, Jacob's gonna die too. I'm gonna kill him. And here's the thing, Esau is the outdoorsman, the hunter. He has all of the tools and skills necessary to pull this off that he could easily kill his brother Jacob if he wanted. Verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran. And stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send you and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Rebecca always has a plan and so she comes up with another plan now to save Jacob's life again. And fleeing now becomes a theme of Jacob's life for many, many years to come as we're gonna look at. And she says at the end, why should I lose both of you in one day? This is calling back to Cain and Abel. When Cain killed his brother Abel, so Abel died, and then Cain was banished from the land. She said, one of my sons has been banished from the land. Why do I want my other son to die and them to be just like Cain and Abel? I will try and save the life of Jacob. So she concocts this plan to save him by sending him away. Verse 46, so Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob marries one of these women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Jacob, then, excuse me, then Isaac called Jacob, blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Paddan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessings of Abraham, 
to you and, may, and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. So Jacob is sent away, clearly now carrying on the promises of Abraham to the next generation. Verse 6, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that is, he blessed him and, and he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Now Esau goes, seeing what, is, what has been done to his brother, he goes and he's like, well, I'll just take another wife. And so he marries into the family of his outcast uncle, Ishmael. Now Esau and Ishmael have many similarities. They are both the oldest child of the family, but neither of them are the child of promise. They're both skilled in weapons of war and with the bow, and they then join forces. These two outcasts, as it is, have joined, and Esau continues just to go his own way. Well, we made it through the story. Now let's take a few moments to think through, right? What's in here for us today? What are some lessons that, that God is, is trying to show us through, through this story that we can live on today? The first is this, is this story shows us that we are to live in submission, not subversion to the will of God. That God calls us to live in submission, not in subversion to the will of God. See, when you read this story, there are no morally upright people in this story, right? You're like, Isaac, nope. Rebecca, no. Jacob, nope. Esau, certainly not, right? All of them are the bad guy in the story. The silence of God in Genesis 27 is striking, especially in comparison with the surrounding episodes and stories where God clearly speaks, clearly guides. It's like in this chapter, he steps back and is like, just watch what happens when they all try and do it on their own. See, Isaac favors Esau and so tries to manipulate God to change his mind by subverting God's plan and doing his own thing. Rebecca and Jacob think God needs their help. God needs their help in figuring out his plan. And so they'll go with whatever extent they deem okay or appropriate, even sinful, because they excuse themselves with saying, well, this is God's plan. See, sinning to accomplish God's will is never God's way. Sinning, and you can sin trying to say, well, this is God's, I'm accomplishing God's will, is never God's way. Genesis is showing us this is how this happened. It's never saying this is how it should be. And we see in this story from before they were born that Jacob was given this blessing. Jacob would be over Esau. But no matter how much Isaac knew that, he still tried to manipulate the situation. See, we can't manipulate God, but we so often try to, don't we? We know God is sovereign. We know he's in control of all things. We know we can't change his will, but we will fight against God's will. We will push back on him all the time, try and subvert his will for us rather than submit to the will of God in our lives. As I was thinking of, of situations where people, rather than submit to the will of someone else, constantly try and push back and subvert it, my mind immediately went to an everyday occurrence in my house, and that is bedtime with a toddler. Bedtime with the, it's the joy of every parent, 
who has a toddler, the, be- the bedtime situation, right? Because it doesn't matter how great the day has been, how good or bad mood your toddler is in. When it comes time to go to bed, your toddler wants to do anything and everything but go to bed. Suddenly they're hungry, they're thirsty, they want to read, they want to snuggle, they want to take a shower, they want to, they want to do anything and everything but actually go to bed. Now here's the thing, as a parent, you're like, child, it is my will that you go to bed. And guess what? You will go to bed eventually. Now, how this goes depends on your attitude, right? And the more you try and subvert and push back and run away and fight, the worse off it's going to go for you. But guess what? You're going to end up in your bed asleep at some point. But once in a while, and I don't know how it happens, if I knew, I would do it every day. Once in a while, it goes perfect, and your child is submissive and they smile and they read the book and don't ask for more and they give you a kiss and they lay down and they don't get out of bed and ask for anything else. And you're like, see how that went. If you could just submit to the will of the parents every night, life would be so much easier rather than try and fight back against it. See, we, we all have things in our lives and I get it's different for sure because we don't have promises like Jacob and Esau had over their life from before they were born. But so many of us, we, we felt God calling us to do something. We, we've heard from others and we felt the impression of God. We've heard from others speak truth into our lives and we feel God leading us, calling us into something, but we will fight back against it as hard as we can. We will push back against it. We don't want it to be true rather than to submit in our lives in obedience and following the will of God for us. See, when we live in subversion rather than submission to God's will, we rob ourselves of the joy of seeing God do the miraculous in his provision. See, Jacob was called before they were born. And what, what, what the story could have been is Rebecca and Isaac sitting back and saying, this is not culturally normal. We don't understand how God is going to do this, but we're going to sit back and let God do a miracle as he elevates our youngest child over the oldest child. But we don't get that story. We get the story of broken people manipulating a situation, trying to take it to their control and to their advantage. A second lesson from this story is this, is that we cannot live outside of obedience and expect blessing. We cannot live outside of obedience to God and expect blessing from God. Now, there's a reason that Genesis 27 is started and ended with basically the same story. And that's Isaac taking foreign wives for himself. This is, and the act of doing so is deliberate and conscious disobedience to God by Esau. That he's deliberately choosing to do this. Now, the Bible is not at all saying here that marrying outside of race or ethnic lines is wrong. The whole point is religious. And that these are, are religious foreigners, that they are, don't worship God. They are idol worshipers. And what Esau is doing here is saying, I don't care. And in fact, by marrying them, most likely he's bringing idol worship into his own home. It wasn't just a cultural thing back then. It wasn't an individual thing, but it's a household worship. There are likely now idols set up in Esau's very own tent to be worshiped. Foreign gods right there. See, Esau chose intentionally to live outside of obedience to God so he could never expect God to bless him. This pattern is throughout the whole of the Bible. As the people of Israel, many years later, are about to enter back into the promised land after they've journeyed through the Exodus and the law is given to them, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 28, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. God lays it all out for the people of Israel and says, listen, I want to bless you. 
but this will come happen if you obey. If you obey the things that I've told you to do, you will be blessed. But a few verses later, he says this, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. This pattern is reinforced throughout the New Testament that it's, it's obedience that leads to blessing in our lives. Now, obedience doesn't earn the right to enter into a relationship with God, into this covenant with God, but it leads to the blessings of God within the relationship that already exists. Now, what I'm not saying this morning is that it's only perfect people who can experience the blessings of God, right? Because if that were the case, none of us would have any chance of experiencing any blessings, right? But, but, and I'm not saying that if you have sin in your life, if, if there's sinful responses and things in your life, that, that God will never be able to bless you, all right? So if you argued with your spouse or if you yelled at your kids, it doesn't mean God will withhold his blessing. Some of you are like, okay, good, because that was the trip to church this morning. It was a shouting match and screaming at the kids. All right, all right, I'm not disqualified forever. But there are certain sins that aren't just responsive, but are characteristic of the heart. That, that are sins that, that as humans we struggle with because ultimately we look to them for meaning, for purpose, for satisfaction. In the Bible, they're called idols. That we look to them and replace God in our lives with certain things. And when we bring in these types of idols, these types of sin into our lives, we cannot expect the blessing of God to flow with it when we're clearly not living in obedience to God in these things. Let's just look at two of them that are so, so focused in our world today. One is the area of sexuality. This is a God in our world today. The freedom for you to live however you want, to think however you want, to be with whoever you want, whenever you want. It's all up to you. You identify how you want, you please yourself how you want. It's no one's right to ever tell you otherwise. Well, scripture says this for the Christian in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. When we mean that the sin of sexuality, we can take it to the extreme, like, oh, that's referring to people who are having affairs or doing, doing hor you know, sexual lifestyles that are contrary, that, that, like we take it way out there. But what about the sin of pornography that's so prevalent in the church today? It's prevalent in our whole world and it's certainly prevalent in the church today. And we think, oh, well, I, I, can, I can do that because that's a private thing. It doesn't hurt, it doesn't, no one's physically hurt by it. No, it it's a fine thing because it's just me and it doesn't actually damage anyone else. We, we can try and excuse our sin. But here's the thing, if you're viewing pornography regularly, this is a stronghold in your life of sexual sin, you will not experience the blessings of God in your life the same way. Because you are looking for satisfaction in sin that is ultimately only found in your Savior. That God will not bless you the same way when we're openly living in sin like this. And so what does he call us to do? Confess it. To bring it to the light. To take the things in our hearts that no one else knows about and confess it to one another. Confess it to a friend, to someone who you trust. Maybe you're like, hey, I don't have anyone in my life that I could do that to. Maybe you're new here at church. I, there's no one that I could trust like that. Any of our pastors would be glad to meet with you at any time. And we'd be glad to listen to you, to encourage you, to pray for you if there's something in your life that you need to confess and repent of. But we cannot live in blessing from God while actively living in sexual sin in our lives. 
Another, another one of these gods is all throughout scripture, people turn to, to this kind of idol for, for meaning and purpose and satisfaction. And it says, in, it shows us this verse in Malachi of what happens when we commit this area to God. In Malachi 3.10, it says this, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, if, if we were to stop and raise hands, how, how many of us this morning want a blessing in our lives that is poured out from God until we have nothing else that we need in our lives? All of us would be like, yep, I want that. Sign me up. Where do I go for that? T tell me what happens before that if I do this, because notice here, God says, test me. This is the only place in scripture that God does this. It's as if God's like, I dare you on this one to actually try this and see what happens, right? Now, now, if this was like, read your Bible for 20 minutes a day, we'd be like, how about 40, just so I'm safe, right? Pray for five minutes a day. I'll pray for 20. I want to make sure, I want this type of blessing from God in my life. Well, what is it that God calls us to do in obedience to receive this blessing? The first start of verse 10 says this, bring the full tithe into storehouses that there may be food in my house, what God is saying is, honor me with your possessions. Bring your money to me. Set aside 10% of what you have and give it back to me and then see what I'll do. Suddenly as Americans, we're not so interested in that sort of blessing anymore. Right? Suddenly we're like, well, I want blessing, but if I have to give away my stuff, I think I want my stuff more than I actually want the blessings of God in my life. See, we feel that way because money is a God in our world. Right? Money is an idol. And in this area of the world, which is perhaps the most, the most affluent area in the history of the world that we live in right now, this consumes everything around us. Our source of security is found in our retirement or our bank accounts. Our source of meaning is in the wages that we will earn this year. Our sense of hope in the future is the amount of money that we have the potential to make in the next two to five or 10 years in the promotions that we could make. And it seems audacious for God to say, yeah, well, well, here's the thing. If you just take 10% of that and set it aside and give that to me, God says, I dare you to do it and see what will happen in your life. I dare you to do it and see the blessings that I will give to you. Now, some of you are like, all right, we're at church. The pastor wants my money. What else is new? I don't want your money. I want God's blessing in your life. And if you're like, I don't trust you, great. I'll give you other churches, other missions organizations. Give it to Informed Choices. Don't, you don't have to give it to Morgan Hill Bible Church if you think I'm up here trying to sell you something. Because the reality is God doesn't need your money. And the person who misses out when you take your finances and you don't give it away, you intentionally don't take a large part of it, up to you maybe 10% or more, and give it back to God, the person who misses out is you. You miss out on the blessing of God. Now, that doesn't mean that God will give you more money because you gave him some money. That's not what it means. But what about the blessing of finding purpose, of finding satisfaction, of contentment, of hope, of peace, of freedom? That's what God's blessings will bring as we honor and worship him in that area. See, we cannot live outside of obedience to God and expect the blessings of God in our lives. A third thing that we see from this story is that the consequences of sin are long-lasting and far-reaching. The consequences of sin are long-lasting and far-reaching. See, the consequences of sin are often not immediately felt in our lives, right? If sin was like a shock collar, we all would sin a lot less, 
right? If every time you sin, you got zapped, you'd be like, all right, I get it. I won't do that again. But we sin and we don't see consequences right away. So what do we do? We keep sinning because we tell ourselves, I can get away from this. Now we can maybe see the story and be like, well, there's no, there's no immediate consequences that happen here. No one dies, no, nothing happens. Well, the conflict has escalated in a way that relationships are permanently basically being severed here. Not only that, but Rebecca in her devious plans to save Jacob, she actually ends up losing him in a way. We'll see later on in the story, Rebecca never sees Jacob again. By the time he comes back home, she has died. And out of the sin of her life of trying to manipulate this and protect her, she actually is losing her son and will never see him again. And what we see in these stories, as we see here of the story of, of parents having favorites for their kids, is we start to see in the book of Genesis, it's starting to highlight for us cycles of sin that are repeated down in generations. If you know the story of Abraham, twice when he traveled into foreign countries and they saw his wife, he said, this is my sister. If you're here last week, what did his son Isaac do when he traveled to a foreign country? He said, this is my sister. He does the exact same thing his dad does. Jacob sees this conflict that's escalated by how his parents have treated their kids having favorites. So certainly he would learn his lesson, right? What do we see in Genesis chapter 37? Now Israel, who is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because of the son of, he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Jacob does the exact same thing that his parents did to him. He's just repeating the cycle of sin. See, too often we live into the same cycle of sin that we have inherited from our families. You know, the, there's the expression that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And sometimes that's for good, but oftentimes that's for bad in our lives. And some of us come from generations of cycles of sin, and we just assume that our lives will end up repeating and struggling and doing the same things that we've seen modeled for us by our parents and our grandparents before. You know, if you're... Um, Statistics say that if you were raised in a family where your parents were divorced, it, the statistics vary, but divorce rate amongst those whose parents were divorced is significantly higher, that they're likely to repeat the same things that they saw happen at home. Alcoholism is a sin that will do horrible things and addiction into a family, but kids of an alcoholic parent are four times more likely to be an alcoholic they will go to the exact same sin that they saw ruin their childhood, but they'll end up in the exact same place. Some of us grew up in families. One of our, or both of our parents were workaholics and they were never home in the evenings. They were always gone. And, and we, we were like, oh my goodness, what, why aren't mom and dad home ever? And we find ourselves repeating the same cycle. Maybe you're like, okay, well, no, I, I'm home. I'm home at five. They're not home at six o'clock for my kids. You're at home, but you're always on your phone working the whole time. Right? If you're always, when you're home with your family, if you're always accessible to work, you're always inaccessible to your spouse and your kids. That, that we, we try and hide our workaholism, but it's the same thing that, that we saw that hurt us that we so often can pass down as well. Some of us maybe had an absent parent at home. They were physically there, but they were mentally and emotionally disengaged and they weren't showing us the love, the attention that we so needed and so wanted and so desired. Yet we so easily, as our kids are around us, have no problem just scrolling through our phones and watching TV as they so desperately need the attention around us. See, if you're a parent this morning, a reminder, your kids are watching you. And the best expectation of your kids' life and faith is your life and your faith. 
It's the best expectation of their future is your present reality. And see, the reality is for some of us, you look at those cycles and that's just four. We could have talked about 20 here, right? And some of you are like, shoot, I'm batting four for four right now, right? This does not look good. And I don't want it. I want it. It shows over four, but I'm four for four. Here's the thing. Your parents' past does not have to be your future. The cycles of sin in which we were raised, we do not have to continue. Now we need to recognize them. We need to acknowledge them because our propensity is to live back into them. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we recognize them, the cycles can end with us. The cycle can end with you. That your parents' past does not necessarily mean it is your future. Your marriage is not necessarily headed towards divorce, not with God involved. That your, your life does not have to evolve into one of addiction. That work can have its proper place in your home. That you can be present for your kids and for your spouse. Because we see here that the consequences of sin are long-lasting and far-reaching. And they directly impact most the people in your life who are closest to you. And so recognize what those cycles of sin have been maybe for generations in your family and ask God for his help, for the spirit strength that it would end with you and that there would be new cycles beginning in your family. God, we thank you that you are the same God then as you are now. And you, by your power, can enable us to stop these cycles of sin in our lives. God, I pray for anyone this morning who maybe looks at their family history of generations and it can so quickly and easily get discouraged. God, I pray that today that they would make the commitment that the cycle of sin and failure and addiction ends with them. And a new cycle of forgiveness, of healing, of grace would start. That with us, a new legacy, a new cycle would be passed down to our kids and our grandkids, we pray. God, would your spirit give us the power to follow you, to obey you. God, we want your blessing in our lives, but we so closely hold on to some of these sins because they've taken up root in our hearts. They've become idols before you. God, would we surrender these things to you, God, because more than anything else, we recognize we need, we want your blessing. So would it motivate us to walk in obedience to you in every single area of our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.